You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. Circle of Hope has a variety of proverbs and convictions that we've assembled over about 20 years or so, and you can find the whole list at circleofhope.net slash proverbs. They became too voluminous for a uh, single pamphlet, so they're online, where we can store longer things. Um, one of them is, dialogue keeps us connected and protects our gravity. Gravity, the center of us, we are committed to a dialogue of love that centers us on Jesus. We think that in order to work out faith in community, we need to do so in relationship with each other. So the dialogue centers us on Jesus, and it doesn't, and, and, and Jesus centers us, not necessarily um, doctrine binding us. When we do theology, when we uh, make doctrine, that is, theology means talk about God, and doctrines like ideas about God, or good ideas about God, we do that together. We don't offer them to you from on high. Even this message I'm giving now should engender dialogue more than it should, more than it is intended for instruction or meant to be doctrinaire, strictly speaking. So it's supposed to get you talking, and I hope that we will talk at the end of this. For the next few weeks, what we'll be working with are ideas that are coming from the community and I'll do my best to answer them, and then, and then we'll answer them together as well. Have some talk back at the end. And, and for what it's worth, there's more opportunity for you to get questions in if you want. So if you have a question that you'd like someone to answer, it could be me or one of the other pastors in our uh, community, just write it down on a piece of paper and put it in the uh, Common Fund sharing box back there. Martha will tell you more about that box later. Or you can just tell me personally or send me a, a message of some kind on some platform, and I'll check it. To be honest, if you send it on Instagram, it's gonna take me a while to find, find out how to view it, and then when I do, I'll record it in some place that I can see. That's just TMI about my social media life. The question I wanna work with today, the one that I hope starts some dialogue is, why do we call, why do we call it a kingdom? This question is referring to the countless times Jesus particularly draws an analogy to what is the kingdom of God or what the kingdom of heaven is. What is the kingdom and why do we call it a kingdom? Some people have found that that term is problematic in a variety of ways and, and we'll get to the, uh, uh, that portion in, in just a moment. But you can see this littered in the New Testament. We'll start in the New Testament, then move into the Old for a little bit. But like in Matthew 6, 33, this is gonna be tiny and hard for you to read, but, or non-existent. Could you get the next one? Greg will save me. In Matthew 6, 33, when Jesus admonishes us not to worry in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about material possessions. When he tells us not to serve money or store up material treasures in our heart. He concludes with this memorable saying, but strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. That's how you don't worry. You strive first for the work that God is doing now, 
in us and in the world, right? The kingdom of God is in, is in our midst. It's within us. He'll go on, so do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Or when John the Baptist opens up the Gospel of Mark, he's inaugurating Jesus, the new Messiah that's coming to save the world. That's how big it is. He says, the time is fulfilled. Okay, let me, that was the first passage. And then there's this one, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come here. Repent and believe in the good news. He's saying the kingdom of God is at hand. It's coming. Jesus is coming. Or at the end of his life, Jesus is interrogated by the uh, Roman authorities in this case and mocked for being the so-called king of the Jews. And the mockery is made complete when he's crowned with a fake crown that's, that has uh, thorns in it, right? And he's mocked as the king of the Jews. And he tells the Roman ruling authority that his kingdom is not of this world. He's saying his kingdom is of another world. It's different. It's unique. It's not like the kingdoms you know about. So we already know it's something different already. So, someone read that, the last two lines here from John 18, so we can hear the whole uh, resonance of it. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from you. So he's already telling us there's something different about this kingdom. There's something uh, nonviolent about the kingdom. If my kingdom were of this world, I wouldn't have stopped Peter from cutting off Malchus's ear. And they would have started uh, uh, the, the revolution that we've been waiting for, right? If you, if you know that scene in the garden where, where Jesus is wondering how he's going to die and what's going to happen the temptation that he has take the cup so we can arm ourselves and try to overtake these romans right there's something happening within him and he submits to it my kingdom isn't of this world it's working a different way paul will extend it further to the romans he'll say for the kingdom of god is not food and drink but righteousness peace joy in the holy spirit he expands this idea because he's joining together different people with different beliefs and backgrounds. In Rome, there are some people who think they can eat, uh, this is probably a little irrelevant to you, but meat sacrificed to idols. And people who think it's wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I guess it's kind of like, uh, I guess we have all sorts of holiness codes about what we eat and what we shouldn't eat too, right? I, some, of, some of you have uh, codes about what tastes good and what doesn't or like the Impossible Whoppers out, which I've been talking about a lot this week. That's like a, a, a new thing that we can eat if you don't eat meat. So we're still struggling with the same kind of ideas, but Paul's saying that isn't the material matter of the kingdom of God. No, joy, peace, and righteousness is. We have a song that says the kingdom of God is justice and peace, and it comes right from Romans 14, because this word for righteousness, dikeosune, could be translated as justice. And so that's what binds us together. Not our unlike af the aforementioned dialogue of love that binds us together. And so we can tell that the kingdom of God is something that's important to the New Testament writers 
because it keeps coming up and there's something distinguishing about it. There's something different about it. There's something, it's not exactly like the kingdoms we know and so it's a little bit confusing. However, when we refer to the work that we're doing together, the work that Jesus has done in us and among us and around us, we call that the kingdom of God, what the work is continuing to happen, right? The work of the church. Some people say the kingdom of God is here and present and it's yet to come. It's here now and we're also extending it and revealing it. Jesus compares it to a hidden treasure or a pearl or yeast. The kingdom of God is like yeast that grows in bread or a or dough, a mustard seed, a fishing net that catches fish that you wouldn't expect. Like that, uh, what did Kristen tell us? The, the, the pepper plant that's growing inside of you, right? There's something kingdom about that too. It's, it's small and it might capture you in a way that you don't expect. It might surprise you because it doesn't act like every other kingdom. There's something different about it. It's unusual. It doesn't follow the rules of what we normally think about kingdoms. But thinking about kingdoms today is unusual in 2019, right? You saw why, right? Kingdoms or monarchies are a lot different than they used to be. Most kingdoms we have in the world right now are constitutional or their, uh, their monarchs hold some sort of symbolic power that's largely regulated by a constitution where really the head of state is a prime minister like it is in the United Kingdom. Here's the royal family. They're very uh, interesting looking people. I'm always surprised when I see them. Isn't, there's an American in the mix now, we got in. <laughs> Did you guys watch the royal wedding? See, I, I'm, I'm into that stuff. I watched, and I watched the homily, too, and the man was really preaching, and I felt, he was, it was great. He mentioned, like, the slave trade to the uh, British people. It was really wonderful. Anyway, that's a separate point. You can watch it later, if, you, if that's your thing. Um, so, technically, the UK is a kingdom. Sweden's a kingdom, too. Check out, this is the Swedish royal family. Look at them. I mean, they're very interesting. They all decided to wear blue that day. You know, there's something, something happening there. I mean, I don't want to be too extra right now, but like, I mean, Swedish people are really white. I mean, it's amazing to me. I'm, it's like, this is, I thought I, thought I knew white people. You know, but then there's the, uh, there's, here's the, the Dutch royal family is really surprising to me too, because they look like a, People you'd run into like at Applebee's in King of Prussia, right? That's what it seems like to me. They look very uh, suburban. That guy's not even looking at the camera. So there's all sorts, there's, 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 uh, there's th these are the kingdoms that we know about, you know? And honestly, kingdom of God, and then you look at the Dutch royal family, like this is the kingdom, it's not, it's not that uh, exciting, you know? At least for me, these people are all figureheads. So most Western kingdoms are liberal. I don't mean that in a political sense. I mean that like they're into democracy and uh, free, uh, um, human rights and freedom and so on. Like they're, they're democratic. It's hard to talk about King Jesus and his kingdom with any sort of sense. Like Jesus is a symbolic figurehead, but we have a constitution that really makes all of our decisions. You know. By the way, there's, there's more theology I could do about that depending on how you see the Bible as how powerful you see the Bible versus Jesus, but it's just too intense for this moment. Um, there are only five absolute, you wanna move beyond Applebee's family? Okay, fine, here's King South. Thank you, that's what you get, okay? Here's a real king, a real king, right? The, uh, the absolute monarchy that is Saudi Arabia. Here he is, here's uh, Ibn Saad uh, with uh, 
FDR there, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 1945, and this is the current king of Saudi Arabia. Only five of these left, they're mainly religious because we decided kind of post-enlightenment after the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and so on. Now, monarchies aren't a good way to run a country, and so we're left with just a handful of absolute monarchies left. Um, this is one of them. And then technically the Vatican City is another monarchy. Only a thousand people live there. But here's the Pope, that's the head, the, uh, the Bishop of Rome. I don't think, we're getting closer, but I don't think these images really help us understand why Jesus is talking about a kingdom. This last one is a, the a Christian attempt to preserve the biblical idea of kingdom, but most of us, especially in this room, I would dare to guess, don't think of the Pope as our king. And I would also say that most Catholics don't really see the Pope as their king in any sort of stately political way. Yes, this is true? I'm looking, I, I know one Catholic, so I, it's not true, but you know, I'm, just, I'm living in the moment. Um, so even that doesn't really work out. Monarchies are historically and often currently tied to religion, so there's something there. Like, who's the uh, supreme governor of the Anglican Church? That is to say, the Church of England. No, Queen Elizabeth is the supreme governor. In practice, it is the Bishop of Canterbury, but the, the queen is the, uh, she's the queen of the Church of England. Which you can, I mean, you saw her a second ago, right? I mean, that's who we're talking about. It's kind of... I mean, I, I don't have a problem with her. I'm not trying to make fun of her or something, you know, but that's, that's who the, the queen of the Anglican church is. So there's a, a religious tie right in the state. So most of these monarchies have religious significance, and most of them are also hereditary. Why isn't the pope hereditary? Because popes don't have children normally. And so they have to, in order to keep the integrity of the throne... They have something called apostolic succession, where the same, this is real technical, you might just want to tune out for two seconds, but the same process of consecration that has occurred since Peter, the first pope, kept this going. This is where we are now. And so that, that's how they keep their tie to not only Peter, but to Jesus, and then the whole lineage after that. Before that, rather. So we're getting closer, but it seems incomplete. In the New Testament, in large part, the New Testament's like the second part of the Bible. It's mainly dealing with Jewish people and Greek people or Gentile people and Jewish people. And both of these groups, both of these groups have an understanding of stately rulers. The Roman, the, the, the Greeks have Rome, a, a Roman emperor that they think of as their stately ruler. And the Jews have a, a memory of kingly monarchical leadership. And in many ways, and they're longing for a new one, in many ways Jesus represents that new king, and that's definitely how the New Testament is written. However, in 1 Samuel 8, now we're in the Old Testament, the Israelites ask God for a king so they can be like the other nations around them. There's no king up until this point in this nation that was inaugurated through the deliverance from Egypt. So Samuel tells them, having a king is a terrible idea. You don't want to do it. And he tells us exactly why, and we know he's right because we know how kings work. He's going to make you fight for him. He's going to enslave your family. He's going to tax you for his own benefit. And then you'll cry out for God, and God's going to ignore you, is what the passage says. And that's, 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 that's the foreshadowing of Babylonian captivity at the end of Kings, what happens. 
And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but we are determined to have a king over us so that we also may be like other nations and our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. They don't realize they're going to get into the fighting, but they think the king is going to do it. Samuel says, this is how kings work. This is how kingdom works. We're doing a different thing. No, we still want it. Fine. And so they enjoy a period of a united monarchy where you have three main kings. Saul, not good. David, ideal king. And then Solomon, supposed to be the wisest dude in the world, but is very excessive and ends up... um, his family problems cause a division in the kingdom and, and, and even a dilution of what uh, Judaism is because he uh, marries like 300 women, has 700 concubines, and so he starts worshiping other gods. And so the whole movement, which we've been trying to keep together for a long time, is falling apart. And then his brother has a fight with the northern governor, and then it splits. And then, here's a little bit more. I always do this, but it's an important part of the story as far as I'm concerned. The kingdom divides in 930 BC. The, the northern kingdom of Israel falls to the Assyrians, never to be heard of again, by, the, uh, by 722. And then the southern kingdom falls in 538 to the Babylonians in a period of exile. This is kind of where most of the Old Testament is written, in this period of exile. And this is exactly what the prophet Samuel said would happen to you. You'll get a king, it'll be cool for a while, and then you'll cry out for God, and God won't be there, and you'll be in Babylonian captivity. That's what happened, because you wanted a king. Great. And so, I think you probably said it with that kind of contempt, too. But they did have a remnant of hope, and that remnant of hope, the book of Matthew tells us, is Jesus, who declares that he, Matthew says, Jesus is the king you're looking for. And he begins Matthew with a genealogy that leads to Jesus. If you start reading the New Testament, you'll start in Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament, and then you'll encounter a bunch of names in the first chapter, and then despair, and then not read the Bible anymore. So, because it's not really relevant to you. But why is it relevant to the Jewish people? Because he draws Jesus' lineage down to, back to David, the best king, if you recall. So that's why sometimes we call uh, Jesus the son of David. That's how he gets the uh, heir. That's how he's the heir to the throne. That's how he gets the rightful, uh, his rightful throne. So what we're gathering is that there's a culturally important element to the word kingdom for the Jewish people that dates back to the start of Israel's kingdom. And for that reason, the recipients of the New Testament have value in monarchical language. And I'm willing to say that if the New Testament were written today, because the use of kingdom here is figurative, especially when it relates to Jesus, and we'll get to that in a moment, we might have different language that's more appropriate for our time and place. You know, I don't know, um, someone in our community wrote a book called Jesus for President, so maybe we'd say president. Maybe that's how we'd work it out. I don't know, maybe that sounds bad to you because you don't like precedents. So maybe it's like the block captain or something like that, like something that jives more with your local uh, municipality. Um, But left as it is, many people find the language problematic. So that's hence this question that we're working with. Why do we call it a kingdom again? Because in our time, the term itself is either symbolic, like it involves Prince Harry and the marriage that he has, and we know there's not much power there, or we just learned that the Queen of England is the leader of the Anglican Church, 
even though no one knows that because it's weird and obscure and it doesn't actually mean anything and if she's decided to assert her authority like by the way she could assert her authority and require the UK to stay in the in the European Union and not Brexit if she did that she'd be undermining the whole parliament and there'd be a civil war and so she could do that but she doesn't and so there's this symbolic power that she holds does that make sense I don't know if you're following all these details that I'm saying but symbolic leader so if Jesus is the symbolic king that's not that um, helpful. On the other hand, the other image of king that we have is like King Saud. Authoritarian, autocratic, women can't drive in Saudi Arabia for some reason, so there's all sorts of rules and, and, uh, and authority from on high. Those are not words that we want to associate with Jesus, or at least there are words that we want to disassociate with Jesus, should they be associated with Jesus in the first place. Add to that, king is also a masculine term refers to men and power, and so we have a whole patriarchal thing that we're trying to undo. So if we say kingdom with impunity without explaining it, uh, we're just kind of buying into that problem. And for the Jewish people, they understand kings are patriarchal and they don't have a problem with it. Because we live in a different time and place, we kind of talk back to that notion, which is appropriate. And some people, notably, uh, Ada Maria Esasa Diaz, who wrote this book, Muharista Theology. Muharista is a Latinx feminist. So Latin woman, but she's into feminist theology. It's a very specific portion of theological thought, very specific context. She uses the term kingdom. Have you heard the term kingdom before where the G is dropped? So as to remove the male orientation and the apparent hierarchical meaning that's intrinsic to the word. And it is intrinsic. Martha asked a good question at the five where she said, well, what's the Hebrew and the Greek for these words? Um, Basileia is kingdom in Greek, which would be translated across as kingdom essentially, or ruling power. It's a feminine word, so it doesn't require that king root that we think of. So it could be ruling power or, or royal power or monarchy or something like that, but you're not getting, you could degender it, but you're not getting away from some of the uh, kind of inherent hierarchy that's in there. Um, and then uh, memleka is the, is the Hebrew word, also translated as kingdom in context for the kingdom of Israel, but then the kingdom of other, of other places too. So that's the technicality. We can't escape this problem just through translation is what I'm saying. Here's what she says. She says, so, someone out loud want to read this? Because, yeah, I don't want to keep talking right now. There are two reasons for not using the regular world. The word employed by English Bible's kingdom. First, it is obviously a sexist word that presumes God is male. Second, the concept of kingdom in our world today is both hierarchical and elitist as is the word reign. The word kingdom makes it clear that when the fullness of God becomes a day-to-day -day reality in the world at large, we will all be sisters and brothers, kin to each other. We will indeed be the family of God. Thanks for reading that. Honestly, I don't part ways with this woman really at all in anything she just said. I totally agree with everything she said because she's giving us, she's saying the word kingdom is corrupted and, and because the kingdom of God is totally different than the kingdom that we think of, we need to rethink, we need to rethink how to describe it. 
I'm sorry I agree with her up and down, right? The kingdom of God is different, right? And in fact, 1 Samuel 8 says, these are the typical kingdoms, and that's exactly what happened. Now Jesus is inaugurating the real kingdom, so to speak, and it is totally different. He ends up dying on a cross, not the ideal path for a kingdom to save the world. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because the gospel is embarrassing, because following a crucified God is not um, edifying, to say the least, at least in the way of, of the world. Jesus um, does a lot of things in a different way. Doesn't make a lot of demands on people, makes invitations. Donald Craybill in 1976 wrote a book called The Upside-Down Kingdom to describe what the kingdom of God is like. She's kind of reversing the kingdom, too, when she says this. It's not about a ruling power. It's about a shared power. Jesus is incarnational. comes down to be like us. So there's some um, flatness to the authority. And I really appreciate that. So I like the intention of the new word because you have a new word, and it's like, it's like an empty container that you can fill with new meaning. If you use the word kingdom, you have to unpack meaning and then repack meaning. There is a reason that the initial package is valuable, though, the initial uh, word kingdom, because something is lost, especially when we don't cite the work like this. For me, and, and, and this is, this is um, specific, we remove some historical significance from the word kingdom that's rooted in Israel's history. And I'm generally careful with that kind of cultural uh, erasing, especially when it comes to Jewish people, because Christians have generally been hostile towards Jewish people. And so I'm just careful with that idea. And I don't want to undo uh, that notion immediately, because it's so rooted in our history, in our lineage, in what I think as Christians we are indebted to. But that's a kind of secondary point since they used the term that made sense for them. It didn't have any special holiness aside from their cultural context. The only reason Israel wanted a king was to be like other nations anyway. So it's not holy. It could be respectful to use the term or helpful in some ways, but still not uh, required, let's say. So I don't want to remove the cultural context, but I also want to acknowledge that it's limited in its universality because it clearly is about a time and a place. This author's right when she says that normally kingdom is masculine and hierarchical. And so, and she proceeds to offer characteristics of the kingdom of God that are unique to the kingdom of God. And they're not unlike the ones that Jesus uses to describe it too. Or even Paul, justice, justice righteousness, joy, peace. And so I would use the same modifiers to describe the kingdom too. The same family connection that we say. Just like we were saying in John 15 at the beginning of the meeting, remain in me and I in you, there's a mutuality. There's a brother to brother, sister to sister, person to person thing happening right in the fabric of the kingdom. But the cultural meaning of kingdom still has power today in its cosmic absoluteness that other terms don't immediately conjure up or immediately indicate. What I mean to say is there's a political meaning that I don't want to lose when Jesus says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Because even though the structure and the content of the kingdom is much different than we know now, where you don't have a, a ruler that's dictating to you what to do, and even Jesus' idea of what uh, masculinity is is also different. Like another feminist theologian says, 
I can worship a male God because Jesus self-empties patriarchy. So he's, that, this is a Rosemary Radford Ruther, if you're interested. So Jesus is flipping everything upside down in this kingdom. Something different is happening. So even though all of that is different, the authority of the kingdom isn't. So a reason to use a term like kingdom is that it connotes a lot of power, and that's a good thing for its, adher its adherence, but it's a bad thing for those who oppose it. And I'm bent on making sure that Jesus reigns supreme over any stately authority. And I'm, I'm interested in making that point and living that way. Jesus is the one that even state authorities answer to. And Jesus is ruler over them too. Which is how we can get in Christian circles, we can laugh at the absurdity of state power, of flags, of borders that divide people up. Because we don't, we don't, we don't submit to a world with such arbitrary distinction because we have another different kind of ruler. Kingdom of God speaks back to the authorities, that Jesus is ruler over them too. And that's definitely the intent of the writers of the New Testament. Um, I can't say that it's exactly the intent of the writers of the Old, though. And so there's something happening there that's, that's a little different. Although you can make the argument, and we can get into that, why I think how they talk about kingdoms in the Old Testament is cool too. They're saying, my freedom comes from Jesus, not the state, and not even religious institutions. The fear with reducing your faith to something besides one that has power over other authorities is that you might still practice your faith, but you might submit to another ruling authority. I may think, for example, that I can participate in the, uh, in the kingdom because it's the state that gives me the freedom to do so. So I can be a Christian because of the First Amendment, because I have freedom of religion. And I'm assigning that segment to another ruling power, and Jesus maintains symbolic power. And I'm careful with doing that because I really do think that's what kind of um, Christians in America face. That's why sometimes people pray, when they start their prayer, they pray, uh, they thank God for, for them living in a country that gives them freedom to worship for some reason. And so they switch their gods in the first like, sentence of the prayer without realizing, oh, you're worshiping something else. You just, that's idolatry, my opinion. So I wanna stay with the kingly language, or you could say monarchical or, or royal or whatever, because I wanna make sure I know where my allegiance is and I don't slip into some, um, some trick of the state to say it as cynically as I can. But that isn't a problem with, um, with um, Asasi Diaz's novel term, kingdom, because that problem exceeds people who use that term. And probably people that intentionally use that term don't fall into that problem very often. So like, I'm not quibbling with what she's doing because I do think it's pretty good theology. But I do think we need to see Jesus as the leader of our lives and not relegate him to some Dutch royal family symbolic place of power. So this is the summary of what we're talking about. The kingdom doesn't work for a couple of reasons, the word. It's masculine when we don't want it to be. It has connotations that we don't aspire to, authoritarianism, patriarchy, and it's confusing 
since the kingdoms we have now are strange, either super authoritarian or uh, we're uh, oddly dressed, you know, I don't know how else to say it, you know, just looking weird on the water. So, sorry, I, I shouldn't make fun of the Swedes and the Dutch that much, but, you know, I don't hang out with people like that all the time. So, what's that? Oh, really? Maybe I should move to Germany. Um, so, it, it has meaning attached to it right now that doesn't make sense. It does work because it has historical significance connected to Jewish people and Christian people. It has meaning that I don't want to just undo. It has a unique meaning that uh, some of it's good, so you keep some of it and you unpack the rest and then you repack more. There's an opportunity there for dialogue and connection. And also, if we see Jesus as the ruler of rulers, as the king of kings, there's your monarchical term, or the lord of lords, there's your feudalistic term, depending on what era you live in, or ruler above rulers, we begin to feel the gravity of our current political economy and society, of what it means to say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm following another authority, another ruler. So there are really good reasons to use that term, in my opinion, because it really is an upside down kingdom. Something different is happening with this kingdom. And then there are some reasons why, in certain contexts, it's problematic to use it. Or you might reach for a different term. So there isn't a real strong answer here. I'm kind of holding two in my hand at once. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.